Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm Dan Rundy. Thanks for joining me for another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with Joshua Eisenman. He's an associate professor at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, and he's also a senior fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. Josh is a noted China watcher, and he's done a number of books, and he's working on a new book, and a lot of his work has touched on the issue of China and China's soft power, and that's what prompted me to reach out to Joshua. So, Joshua, thanks for being with us today. How did you end up getting into the China business? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to be here. That's actually a tough question, right? If I had to say, you know, a bit of an anecdote, it goes back to when I was in high school and I accidentally ended up in the Taipei Palace Museum's first exhibit ever in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and was really blown away by it. And it was at that moment that whether I knew it or not, I was going to study China. And the question was, what was I going to study? And so that's how I got interested in China. It goes back to the late 90s happening to grow up in New York and be around that great place to met. And, you know, after that, I got to GW and then there were people like Harry Harding there and others who were doing great things that I, you know, I took their classes and I learned and I decided I wanted to study contemporary China. Can you talk about, you've written several books. Tell us about several of your books. Well, you know, the first book that I did was with Ambassador Derek Mitchell and Eric Hagenbotham, who's at MIT. And that book was done in 2007. It was about China and the developing world. And that was an edited volume. I think that was back when Derek Mitchell was at CSIS, as a matter of fact. So it was about China and the developing world. And in that sense, I believe it was very much ahead of its time. It was published in 2007, and it looked at China's relationship in each of the areas of the developing world. And I authored the chapter on China-Africa relations. And after that, I moved to work with Ambassador David Shin, who was the former U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia and Burkina Faso, and is now professor at George Washington University, a noted Africanist. So he and I wrote uh, China and Africa, A Century of Engagement in 2012. And then, you know, most recently, I wrote a book, my dissertation book, called Red China's Green Revolution, which is about how, essentially, I unearthed all of the agricultural data from every single province of China from 1949 to 1979, and was able to demonstrate that counter to our actual understanding, the Chinese People's Commune in the 1970s was one of, if not the most productive agricultural institutions China and the world have ever known. And so that is a very different kind of exploration. It's a political economy exploration. It's very much a social science exploration using statistical work, economic models, and other things of that ilk. And I'm very proud of it as a contribution to our knowledge about how China's development process actually occurred, stepping beyond the myths created by Deng Xiaoping his folk to truly understand what lies behind the economic development growth, quote, miracle that is the PRC. How has China leveraged its development history as it seeks to extend its soft power beyond its immediate periphery? You know, this is a great question. And what I want to do is first, I want to unpack this idea of soft power, because in the book, Ambassador Shin and I are working on a new book on the political and security relationship. And I'm kind of leading the drafting, if you will, on this chapter. 
but we don't refer to it as soft power. We refer to it as what I think it is, which is foreign-focused propaganda work in Chinese And this, um, I think, is a much better explanation because we are looking at something which is party-driven, party-funded, and serves the party's aims. This is not the NBA or French fashion or Japanese manga. This is from the Communist Party of China. It needs a different name. And I want to caution your listeners here to avoid using PRC or CPC definitions for Western terms. Democracy, for instance, has been redefined by the Communist Party. Congress. What is the Congress? Well, in China, it's the National People's Congress. Is that really a Congress? But they use the word human rights. China regularly uses the term human rights, but they're not talking about what you and I might be. Freedom. They regularly use the word freedom and soft power. So I would caution us all to not mirror image, to not call what China is doing soft power because it's, it's not. It's distinct. It is foreign-focused propaganda work. And within that context, I'd like to answer your question, which is to say that China has really achieved some great things in terms of development since 1949. There have been catastrophes. Don't get me wrong. I am not denying the Great Leap Forward and the deaths. That is not what is going on here. But we do have to recognize that there have been achievements. And the raising of hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, the amazing increase in life expectancy noted by the world development indicators between 1964 and 1967, your average Chinese person's average life expectancy increased from 46 years to 66 years. My knowledge, this is unprecedented in history, and it needs to be recognized as an achievement, as well as the education of young girls, especially, but largely making China a literate country. Before the CPC took over China, China was a country of illiterates. And after, at this point, China is a country of literate people, food, basic medical attention. There's been a lot of gains here, but here's the rub that a lot of these gains were actually made in the pre-78 period. So it's not the reform and opening up that we're all told about that is really attributed, in my opinion, these amazing achievements. Most of them were actually achieved under the period we're told was a disaster. And so this, I think, really needs to be redressed. And actually, Xi Jinping is the first leader to actually acknowledge the contributions of this era because he's not beholden in many ways to the predecessors. He has acknowledged it, and I do appreciate that he has. So the problem, if you will, with what China is doing right now and what in its own history, in terms of its development history, is that many of these gains were made under the Mao era, but that's not what's being sold under the Belt and Road Initiative. The constant references to the 1980s period and that period as being instrumental or instructive to me is problematic because when we look at the indicators, we look at literacy rates, we look at you know roads, we look at electrification, we look at basic health and living standards, many African countries are more similar to China in the 1960s than they are China in the 1980s. And so I think that there is a question here, a kind of a disconnect between what China has been offering or is suggesting that it's offering through BRI and meeting up with those actual needs. And to me, what those countries need to do is what China did in the 1970s, which is feed itself. Because how much hard currency flows out of these countries every single day to buy grain, right? How much hard currency that should have been invested in other things. So to me, there are lessons to be learned from China's development experience, but they're not necessarily the lessons that are being taught in these interactions. And I can go on about some of the contradictions if you want, but why don't I just pause there? That's fabulous. Could you imagine a scenario where African countries end up in some kind of economic neo-colonial relationship with China? 
in some cases, it's already happening, but it's certainly not a majority of cases, right? You look at a place like Djibouti and you may find some inclinations of that. You know, the issue that China has in Africa and the issue that all foreigners have in Africa is the development of anti-foreign resistance narratives. And the Chinese side are confronting this head on right now in Nigeria, in Kenya, even you know, in Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe is a traditional partner in many ways. So you know, China faces a lot of suspicion. Some of that suspicion is driven by perhaps Western news analysis in their opinion, but some of it's driven by on the ground behavior. And Chinese citizens are suffering. I mean, you know, there have been more kidnappings and more harm done to them. So there is a great kind of awareness of this problem. I'm not saying that it isn't happening at some level, but I think that we should not underestimate Africans' ability to push back and to use a variety of different what has been called weapons of the weak in order to take what on the face of it seems like a very disadvantageous situation and, and manipulate the on-the-ground realities. So the Africans are very much aware of this problem, and I think many of them are doing what they can to avoid it. It's obviously different in countries where you have more free press and more opposition parties, then you often will get more pushback and more voices. But even in Ethiopia, the EPRDF, the former ruling party of Ethiopia, is now disintegrated last year. I think there's a lot of stumbling blocks in the way before China could race the level of kind of a colonial, uh, you know, as well as the fact that, you know, these countries are not going to come under complete political control by any foreign country in the future. That's the past. I really bought this argument about China getting old before it gets rich, that it's on its way from going to 10% of folks over the age of 60 to 30% over the age of 60. And they're going to go from 1.3 billion people to 1 billion people. That's a lot of old folks. Don't get me wrong. I'm almost an old folk. So I associate myself with that term. But it strikes me that the kind of money they've been throwing around say in 2014 or 2015, are they going to be throwing that kind of money around in five years as they have to kind of choose between said either battleships, Belt and Road, or the equivalent of old people's social security? Aren't they going to have to keep throwing more and more money at old people's social security and they have less to throw around at other stuff? I mean, is that is that likely? I think it's a great point. And let me pile on to it. You're not only old, but you're predominantly male. And old and male, I mean, you know, <laughs> someday hopefully we'll fit in this category, but it's not a way to be progressive usually and reform minded, right? And so there is a question about whether or not, you know, China's, certainly China's economy can continue, but can it continue to be a kind of dynamic place when it is so old and it is so male? And when I say male, I mean, China has 20 million more men than women. That's the entire population of Canada. It's a very serious problem in the country as well as the demographic issue, which you certainly point out. Um, now, what's interesting about the Belt and Road Initiative is one of the important drivers of it was a desire to get greater returns for China's investment dollars, right? That putting your money into UST bills, you know, it may be safe, but it definitely doesn't give you high returns. No. And so China was looking to develop its soft power, develop its influence at the same time of getting better returns to capital than it was getting on in these safe investments. And guess what? That hasn't really worked out because this crisis means they're not getting paid back. And so, you know, maybe the, the returns on paper were better, but if you're not getting paid back and if you're having to negotiate, as they just did, with dozens of countries to figure out about payment schedules, T-bills are still paying as they always do. 
But now what do you do with a debt crisis in Africa? And therefore you have a political crisis on your hands too. Just send some Chinese battleships and tell them you'll invade if you don't pay back, right? Is that going to work? <laughs> no. This gunboat diplomacy of the 19th century, you know, I think in this world today, I think it would be bad for them. And I think they know it because, I mean, it would stink too much of colonialism, right? It would undermine their soft power meta narrative of we are not the West. We are like you. We too are developing countries. Follow us. We've done this before. Okay. How about this? Do you think African nations are going to be forced to pick a side or is this an artificial narrative? So there's a variety of different literatures on asymmetry and how countries, which are very small, deal with countries that are large. And the primary idea is they try to keep their autonomy in policymaking as much as they can. Try to keep their options open. Now, this doesn't mean that sometimes you do have bandwagoning where you have countries that go ahead and join with the new country, which is offering them a lot. And I offered the example of Djibouti. There are others. So my sense is that these countries are going to try to retain their autonomy as much as they can. They're going to try to not pick a side as much as they can. On some issues, they may have to choose. For example, like military hardware, you need compatibility. So you need to kind of seek out one consistent supplier, especially for repairs and parts, other things like that. But politically speaking, I think they're going to try to continue to not choose. But what's interesting is that on the major issues that China cares about, the Hong Kong, the Taiwan, the South China Sea, it has the full support of these African countries. And, you know, Xinjiang too. You know, when you look at the countries that signed on behind China, supporting what China is doing to Muslims in Xinjiang, that is in far excess of what is supporting any redress of those problems. So China has done a great job on the issues it cares most about, which I will stress are issues that Africans tend not to care about. The Africans don't care about Taiwan that much. They don't care about South China Sea. This is far. It's an easy thing for them to say, okay, China, yeah, it's all yours because it doesn't matter to us. But what it does for China is it just adds voices politically and allows China to say dozens, hundreds of nations support our position on Xinjiang. So I would say that there doesn't have to necessarily be a choice. Also, because I think there's a mistake in the idea, and I'm curious what you think about this, that the U.S. even can compete with China in Africa. First, because the U.S. just doesn't prioritize Africa. And this isn't just about this current administration. The last administration didn't really prioritize Africa either. So it's fallen below the bottom of the floor. But it was at the bottom to begin with of the priority list. And so for China, the first visit every year for the foreign minister, every single year since the 80s, has been to Africa. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That is not our level of prioritization. It simply isn't. So when we have Africa low, if not the bottom of the priority list, then we've got no real chance to bring Africans to our side if such a thing even exists. And then in an economic sense, if we think of this as a supply chain phenomenon, then for a long time anyway, and even still today, many of the products which materials were sourced in Africa, perhaps wood products, might be made in China and then sent to consumers in Beijing, Bangkok, and Boston. It's not that there's a competition there because we don't produce that stuff anyway. So on the economic side, there really isn't any competition between the U.S. and China, you know, that I can tell. And the idea that we're going to get into bed and start lending out billions of dollars 
for infrastructure, that's just not going to happen. It may happen that we lend to our own companies, but that'll be in a very small amount by comparison to the BRI. And I would want to stress that I don't want us to do a BRI. I think that's a fool's errand. I think they made a mistake. I think they're paying for it now. I think that the tide has gone out and they see that a lot of the swimmers are naked. And now they've got to deal with the problem. Look, I think on Africa, here's my take. This isn't your grandparents' Africa. It's richer, freer, more capable, with more options and more agency. And it's going to go from a billion people to two billion people. We are beneficiaries that we have enjoyed very, very, very high approval ratings in Africa, in most countries. A lot of it had to do with sort of our engagement on foreign aid, whether it's the HIV AIDS initiative of Bush and then followed up by Obama and continued by Trump. We don't have what I would describe as kind of a colonial legacy in Africa, so we benefit from that as well. I'd say that the problem I think the United States has vis-a-vis our relationship in Africa is we've always seen it as a continent of problems to be managed as opposed to a continent of opportunities. What I think China does better than we do is sees Africa as a continent of opportunities The fact that they have this annual or every couple of years, they've got this head of state. I forget what it's called, but the head of state meeting. What's it called? It's called the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. It's FOCAC. It happens every three years and it alternates between China and an African country. Right. Now, I know that in Japan, it does a similar thing. The Japanese prime minister received every single head of state for 15 minutes. He blocked out eight and a half hours. And just did it like that, 54 of them. (laughs) I don't know when he had a bathroom break. I don't know when he had a lunch break. I don't know. But my view is if we're going to host heads of state, we got to receive all of them bilaterally. I'll know we've changed when the president of the United States gives nine hours to receiving every single African estate, even for 10 minutes. It would be enough, I think. But God almighty, can you imagine? So I've been focused on this for a while. I'm interested in it. I was one of the architects of the Prosper Africa Initiative policy. And I think if you go back to the Clinton administration and you follow the arc across Bush 43, Obama to Trump, there is an evolution in our thinking, but we're still sort of 15 years behind where we need to be about seeing Africa as an opportunity. But directionally, the kind, we're going in the right direction on this. But I think it also means we have to update our cassette tapes. I'm aging, I'm dating myself. Update our cassette tape about how we think about Africa. I also think it means we're going to have to update our toolkit. And it's going to mean we're going to have to update our offer. And we're going to have to move to kind of more of a trade and commercial paradigm. I think Prosper Africa moves us in that direction. And frankly, Prosper Africa builds on the Obama administration's Power Africa. And that's a good thing. So that's a good thing. So like I said, there's been there's been kind of building blocks. So we're going in the right direction. We're still, we got a long way to go. Okay, so Joshua, here's my last question for you. I certainly think we got to up our game in places like Africa or the Indo-Pacific. You've spent a lot of time studying China. You've spent a lot of time thinking about their soft power, both their public diplomacy and their development. I got my views about this. I do this all day long, but you've got a different perspective. What do you think we ought to be doing to respond to China's soft power offer in places like Africa and the Indo-Pacific? Look, uh, let me start with what is the thing we have, right? There's one thing America still has that is the envy of the world, and that is our upper, higher level. Amen. I'm your amen amen corner over here, Joshua. Amen. Amen. (laughs) uh, As I sit here at Notre Dame, I will tell you that um, that is what the world wants. And so what China has put forward this 
kind of very top-down approach where it allows its embassy to recruit African students to study in China, to essentially run scholarship programs. Whereas we do it on a piecemeal basis. Each university receives applications from students, including African students, and then evaluates them. And I think one thing that we have done a very poor job of is advertising and letting African students know that there are real opportunities in the United States for them, making them opportunities. But I think there are still a lot of them at this moment that are available that Africans just don't know about. So how can we better leverage our consulates and our embassies and anything else to get the word out to African students that America's educational doors are open to them. And that means we have to get rid of these ridiculous visa restrictions once the COVID crisis is over. We need to make it easy for these students to come to the United States. We need to make it a place that they want to come to. We need to make this a kind of a cornerstone of our approach to engaging the world because this is what we have to offer that they want and that we can give to them. And it is a much better education than in China. When you study in China as a foreign student, and I know because I was one, you live in the foreign student's dormitory. And nowadays it's got cameras and even wired fence around some of them. They are separated, segregated from the Chinese student. That does not happen in the United States. You come here as an African student, you live with American students, you are a part of the community. It is not the same experience. And we have this experience on offer. We got to bring in more African students. Do you lose sleep at night that China's going to rule the world someday? That's my closing question for you. Look, I think that we, for a long time, didn't understand the fundamental truth that the Communist Party of China is a political organization and its fundamental objectives are political. Its means may be economic, its means may be military, or its means may be political, but its objectives are always political. And that objectives are first and foremost to control China, to control the People's Republic of China, to not lose control and be Ceausescu'd out of their own country. That's number one. Number two is their revanchist claims to Taiwan, to, you know, the South China Sea, the Indian border, etc. Right. And eventually, I want to add, yes, uh, Vladivostok and that area, too, which was taken from China during the Opium War. I do not think that that is settled business, no matter what I hear. I do believe that eventually that business will be rebrought. But I would add on to this. The third objective is to basically make China eventually the most powerful country in the world. And that means that China is going to have a great deal of influence, that China is going to expand its relationships. Let's be clear among us, right? I do not believe China's objective is to be number two. I think their objective is to be number one and all that entails. And then you've got to ask yourself, what is the character of the regime that rules in Beijing? And do you want it to be the most powerful country in the world? Everyone may have a different answer to that question. My view is that the character of the regime is increasingly concerning to me. And in the upcoming days in October, there's supposed to be a fifth plenum in Beijing where it looks like they may be discussing the quote 2035 plan. And that is an extension of an ultra long rule of Xi Jinping. I mean, look, You've been in Washington a long time. When I was there, we had three views of how we viewed China. The first view, which was the most popular, was that China would eventually emerge as a liberal country politically like us. This was the wisdom of both parties of engagement. Then there was a, a second view where some people like David Shambaugh, that the Communist Party of China wasn't long for this world, that it would eventually fall under its own weight. And then people like myself thought that China would simply muddle through like a rickety house in the wind. It would neither fall nor would it necessarily consolidate power, but there would be checks within 
the party, a kind of intra-party democracy as it was sold to us. The truth is none of those things happened. We went back to the chairman of all things, and now Xi Jinping can rule China as he wishes. And that is simply not something that any of us in Washington talked about in the early 2000s. And had you talked in that way, you may well have been laughed out of any think tank there because it was simply not considered. And so we think we need to be very modest in our understandings of what we think China is going to do. I think we have to be much more modest in terms of what we think we can influence China. China makes its own decisions. Our policy towards China has a very small impact, I believe, on their behavior compared to what we think it does or what it used to have. And I think we need to be very modest in terms of our ability to change China. From our proselytizing in the 1800s and before to now, we are not going to change China. And part of the problem has been that they have led us down the primrose path of believing that we would, telling us time and time again on so many delegations that China is changing, just give us more time. That may or may not have been true in the minds of the people who said it. I cannot speak them. I'm not calling them dishonest. But the truth is that's not how it's turned out. We have to be recognizing it and we have to basically deal with the China that we have, not the China that we wish, or create some China policy that only works if we can change China, which has been, I think, a, a problem for us. Okay, Joshua Eisman, thanks for the time. Fantastic. Let's do this again. It's a pleasure. Thank right. you so much. All right. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 